Today, I'm speaking to Rakesh Baudia, Principal and Portfolio Manager at Pazina Investment Management. Welcome, Rakesh. How are things? Very well. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for, for taking the time to speak with us. So I want to start with the focus of today's interview, which we'll return to later in the episode. Uh, a hallmark of emerging markets is growth. Uh, as a result, I think some suggest these markets aren't a natural home for value investors. So why do you believe that trope to be false? Yeah, this is a question we get a lot, Hayden. And it's interesting because if you think about GDP growth rates and investment returns, there's really not a very high correlation between the two. And, and to simplify this, if you think, uh, let's say, at a stock level, a stock may have really high growth, but it may be a bad investment if you're paying too much for it and mm -hmm. vice versa. So the growth, the growth of a stock or growth of an economy is only a good or bad investment depending on what you're paying for it. So when we are looking at an investment opportunity, whether it's high growth or low growth, it all comes down to what you're paying for it. And our philosophy is deep value, where we want to buy stocks and companies where uh, the fundamentals of the, the earnings power are detached from the stock price. And that works in all markets, whether it's high growth or low growth. Got it. And there's a few points I want to dig into there. Uh, but before we do, I think we can circle back and cover some of your background just to introduce you to the listeners. Absolutely. Um, so as, as principal at Booz Allen Hamilton, you focus on innovation and growth strategies. At least that's that's what I read when doing my research and looking on your LinkedIn profile. You did your so, research well. <laughs> thank you very much. So um, I was interested as, as I, you know, this is a question I often ask interviewees, but what are you able to apply from that experience, your earlier experience now in your current position? Yeah, so uh, at Booz Allen, when, when, when we say innovation and growth strategies, that essentially included two core areas of work. Mm -hmm. uh, innovation was essentially around companies who had new products or had existing products that they wanted to launch in new markets. So a lot of my work was understanding the, the value of doing that in new markets. So that required you to do a business case assessment of what's the market, what's the competition, what's the pricing, how much money can they make, which is really very close to what we do as, as part of our, our work at assessing any investment. What's the future potential of any particular business? It, it might not be new in that market, but it's the exact same uh, process and the, the analysis is very, very similar. And it's the same philosophy when we look at growth strategies. Most of them were aimed at launching uh, products in new markets. Mm. Uh, for example, I did some work with uh, a healthcare company, which was uh, it's it's a it's a biotech company which was launching a. A psoriasis drug in different markets and each individual market the assessment was around you know what's the market size what's the regulation what's the competition what's the profitability potential uh, how much investment is needed which is exactly what we do uh, for individual stocks at this space so it was actually a pretty pretty solid fit uh, with from the standpoint of long-term fundamental investing which is what we do at Pazina. yeah great sounds like a the perfect formative experience, I suppose, for a role like this one. And, and if we go a little bit further ahead in 2007, I believe you joined Pazina. So uh, a pretty turbulent period, uh, particularly in markets, to say the least. I mean, how do you reflect on those first few years and with banks collapsing and having to be propped up again now? 
do you recognize any parallels today? Yeah, it, it it's it's crazy, right? I think about it. It was kind of perfect timing in a way, uh, but I think it was also an amazing experience. Those were my formative years in investment management and at Pazina. And I really got to see, you know, it was really a, it was really a tough time for uh, for value investors, including at Zena, and it was really heartwarming to see how we never wavered from our discipline. It was really hard, but we continued on our course of of keeping our philosophy and process intact, and doing the same thing we we have always believed in. It was also very critical for me to to see how we treated our people. People in those times, look, mm. a lot of analysts were, you know, covering financials and and things were hard, uh, you know, and and these and and how the leadership dealt with with that situation, it really uh, cemented my conviction in our leadership uh, on our investment approach, and and I guess that's why no surprise I'm here, you know, 15 years later. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dig into the the kind of core principles that prop up Pazina's investment approach and philosophy then. Um, I saw, I think on your website, the philosophy characterized as an unwavering commitment to a classic value research-driven discipline uh, present since the company's inception more than 25 years ago, I believe. So to what extent do you think that differentiates you from other emerging markets peers? It is surprisingly, a, uh, it, it might sound very simple, but surprisingly a huge differentiator. If you just, and, and it actually became a lot clearer over the last decade or so, because we basically, after the global financial crisis or starting from that point onwards, we had about uh, you know, 10, 12, 13 years of value not working as an approach, as an investment uh, philosophy. And are sticking to our guns are sticking to our process are you know we doing exactly what we say we do um, and it, it got tough i mean there were times when when you know there were serious questions asked of us of you know does it make sense to you guys still staying the course but if if there's one takeaway about pazina i want you to take away today is that that's who we are. We do one and only one thing, and we will never deviate from from our philosophy and process, no matter what the market conditions or investor sentiment dictates. And that has essentially separated us from the crowd because many of the other value investors either threw in the towel or you know changed their stripes trying to justify non-value investments as value investments and changed their stripes, and 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 essentially. It, that differentiation has become really uh, apparent over the last two or three years when the value stocks actually have worked well and it has shown in our performance. Uh, as, as, and, and so I believe that it might sound simple, but for those 10 years when things were not uh, really favorable, it, was, it took true grit and discipline to stay the course and that definitely is a, a critical differentiator for our business. Several psychological underpinnings were highlighted on the Pazina website to explain simply why value works, um, an inclination to overreact to near-term uh, near -term events, to misjudge future events, and to be overconfident in one's ability to predict outcomes were all mentioned and referenced on your website. So with those in mind, is a valuation-based approach even more powerful in less developed, less well understood, and potentially more volatile markets? 
Absolutely, Hayden. And, and we have done empirical research to demonstrate that. But essentially, if you go back to, you know, why value works as an investing approach, it works because we are all human. It works because we have a tendency of risk aversion. We have a tendency to to shun uncertainty. And, uh, and as a result, when there is uncertainty, there's fear in the market, uh, basically stock prices deviate from their long-term fundamentals because people don't want to own those stocks. And that is what creates opportunity for value investors like us to capitalize on those price dislocations. And clearly, as you stated, that fear factor, those those kind of price dislocations are just more elevated in emerging markets. They are, for lack of a better word, crazier part of the world in, in lots of investors' eyes. And 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 for, for the right reasons. I mean, we had a coup in Turkey six years ago. You know, it's it's in this day and time. We had a toppling of governments in lots of emerging markets, including Thailand. We are having a war in, in Russia and Ukraine right now. These are uh, significant geopolitical events which can dramatically change people's perspective about a country, about a sector, and that creates uh, much bigger price dislocations uh, versus in U.S. where, of course, there's a banking crisis, market goes down 10%, but then people say, okay, life moves on and people go back to things as usual. And as a result, bigger price dislocations means bigger investment opportunity. So uh, you're absolutely right that uh, that you know, in emerging markets, the value philosophy and approach actually works uh, even better in, in many respects. And then I think you're also right that uh, in, in emerging markets, the business models are, are less mature. There is less data availability. So so really, it is it is the, the a critical kind of uh, a research orientation with with deep focus on fundamentals and trying to uncover and comparing it to the global markets on how these businesses evolve is is particularly powerful in emerging markets to see how you know you can create uh, you can basically assess how the businesses will evolve over the next few years and that can be very very valuable as an active investor yeah absolutely and um I think I want to dig into the investment case, the wider investment case for EM value in a little more detail. But before we do, I think the last key element or ingredient of Pazina's investment philosophy was labelled on your website, a long-term time horizon that's espoused across the website. So in in your view, I suppose, and in Pazina's view, what is long-term and why is that horizon so important to EM value investing? Yeah, uh, it's it's... So if you think about us, we dabble in the deep value part of the universe where most of our investments is in the cheapest quintile, cheapest 20% of the universe. And at the same time, we are not distressed investors. Our core philosophy uh, is, fo- is, is basically focused on finding businesses which, are, uh, which have a competitive edge versus their, com- which is their peers and, and really have, have a fundamental strength that we want to capitalize on. Now, when do these businesses come in the cheapest quintile? When people are really worried about about issues and there is no clarity, there is no catalyst in sight on how long, whether the issue can be fixed, it might take several years for, for those things to play out. So if you want to really invest in the deep value part of the universe, uh, you're investing well ahead of, of a catalyst in sight. And as a result, the 
the company's ability to resolve these issues and uh, fix its profitability is a several year journey. And so uh, for many of the businesses we are looking at, the companies take you know two to three years to really come out of, of the, the problems they are facing. It could be cyclical uh, business supply demand issues. It could be a company's cost structure needs to be fixed. It, it could be a variety of issues, but they really need to, that, that journey takes several years. So our average holding period for most stocks in our portfolio is around three to five years, which is kind of about the time we take we think it takes for the business to to fix its profitability and for market to realize that the pain point is behind them, the uncertainty behind them, and the market starts giving them credit for what their fundamental intrinsic earnings power is. So that's that's really critical for, and, and EM actually it's even more so because number one, the price dislocations are bigger and it generally takes longer in many emerging markets for things to fix itself because in 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 developed world just as an example you know if a company is not doing well the management can just be changed because the board thinks it's a bad management team it might take 6 months or an year but you know an activist might come in or not and it can get changed in emerging markets very often uh, the the management could be a a promoter-led, it's like majority owned by either a state or an individual. So the management change is a slower process and it takes a lot of engagement with them, lots of dialogue with them, lots of, uh, you know, working with them to to help them through the journey. Uh, and, and that's why it's, it's even more critical in, in uh, emerging markets. And I'll, I'll just give you a last data point, which is based on empirical returns, that if you look at annual returns of emerging markets, and you look at the cheapest part of the universe versus the most expensive part of the universe it's it outperforms most of the time but it's much it's it's much lower than if you look at a 5 year holding period of the cheapest stocks when you look at a 5 year holding periods the outperf- the cheapest quintile outperforms almost 85% of the times and with some tremendous uh, tremendous uh, degree of differentiation versus the the market and so that further illustrates that the long term orientation is absolutely critical as a deep value investor but especially in emerging markets yeah absolutely uh, and on that manage point management point it's interesting that that dynamic is exacerbated or heightened in emerging markets versus developed markets um, right. so yeah glad we were able to get to that um i think then I want to move to the investment case for EM value and return to that opening question, I suppose. Uh, I read a report before the call that highlighted a significant widespread valuation buffer uh, exists in today's markets. Um, and to put that or less to put that in less abstract terms, I suppose, for the listeners, whereby even a normalization back to value's long-term discount to the broader market implies that the cheapest third of stocks will actually outperform by almost 12% over the next three years. Um, so that was a report I read before the call, but I'm interested to understand whether you and Pazina are as bullish as that. Uh, I would say we are even more bullish. Uh, I mean, and we, we also look at valuation spreads uh, around the world. And I would, I would on the onset say that, yes, it has been two good years for value investors, but across the world uh, today, if you look at the valuation spreads, they are in the top 15 percentile of the valuation spreads over the last 30 to 50 years. Now, 
that essentially means that if you if you use today's starting point and look at what has happened in the history, the normalization, we're talking of a substantial outperformance, not not the numbers that you said. I mean, it it hopefully it's 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 as much as we think it is. But to put some U.S. data around, uh, which is looking at the value cycles over the last 50 years, because that's where uh, we have data going back all the way to 1960s and 70s. An average uh, value outperformance cycle lasts about five years, around 62 months. We are about 28 months into this cycle. An average outperformance over the last uh, several value outperformance cycles has been around 138%. Hmm. We are only about 60% in this cycle so far. So, so both from a top-down perspective of valuation spreads, looking at the history of, of what the past value cycles have done around the world, we feel very energized by the opportunity in value stocks right now. And I and most of us sincerely believe that uh, 12% is, is low on that standpoint. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, with that in mind then, um, also investors I don't think are being forced as a result of everything that we've just discussed. I don't think investors are being forced to to choose between quality and value. Uh, both are available in today's global stock markets uh, with affordable quality stocks very much on offer. So is this true in today's emerging markets, in your opinion, firstly, and then we'll dig into the valuation aspect? Yeah, so if you, so if you think about who we are at Pazina, we are always focused on, on buying businesses which are fundamentally very, very strong. And and to us, that is a definition of quality. Its market might treat quality as you know steadiness of earnings as a metric, but for us, quality is the the strength of a particular company versus its market, the returns that the company generates. So we have always been able to find high quality stocks in the in emerging markets historically. The 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 big change I think that you're referring to is that most of those uh, opportunities were generally cyclical in nature from a sectoral standpoint because that's where the valuation spreads were the widest. So we found a lot of materials, financials, industrials, and what has changed over the last two or three years to, to your to your point is that that opportunity set has become much more diverse right now. I, I can't remember the last time, you know, going back like over almost over 10 years that we we had any consumer staples high quality name which became that came the deep value category but over the last two years we were able to add for example in our portfolio Ambev, which is the largest beer producer in brazil has 60 percent market share owns the tops seven of the top 10 brands in brazil uh, has the best distribution network, great balance sheet, or we were able to add uh, Vietnam Dairy, which is the largest uh, dairy producer in Vietnam. So, so we have been able to find names in in sectors which were kind of inaccessible to us, and and the same is true for country as well. So, I think I would probably paraphrase in in saying uh, in kind of answering a question in a way that. Quality stocks were always available uh, in emerging markets. It's just that the range of quality stocks that are available today has become a lot more diverse than it has been in the prior 10 decade or so. Yeah, okay. Well, to build on that point then, for a long time, value investors have had to ignore China Tech, for example. But to what extent should stocks like Alibaba and JD.com, for example, be on value investors' radars in 2023? 
Yeah, uh, I would say Alibaba, absolutely. Uh, that uh, Alibaba is 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 a stock that we we did look at after the collapse over the last two years, and we believe it is one of the most amazing value stocks in the emerging markets universe right now. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I can go into detail, but it basically, essentially, it's a leader in an industry which is still growing very rapidly. Yes, they may be losing some share as an incumbent, but they still have uh, a positive uh, earnings growth in that business. And they are the largest cloud player in China, which has tremendous upside potential, both in terms of how much you can grow in China and the profitability of how the business could improve. And lastly, I would say that a lot of the things that could have gone wrong have already gone wrong for them. So there is really, if you look at the skew of outcomes, it's significantly towards the upside, whether it's it's fines for what they have done, whether it's the, the investments they have made. And the company is embarking on a journey where they are controlling their costs, controlling their investments. And so the incremental uh, earnings power that is embedded in the company is quite substantial. Uh, if you look at the other Chinese tech stocks, which most of them were really expensive, I mean, Tencent is another one which got cheap. And I think all of them, including JD, they got cheap for a very short window during October when when the Politburo meetings happened and, and she really cemented his power and a lot of people were, were concerned about uh, the investability of, of you know, uh, stocks in China, but since then many of those stocks have rebounded quite well. And if at least from our process and and we think about you know uh, for every stock what is the normalized earnings power, which is what a company should earn through a cycle over the next five years, uh, and we we'll look at what stock price you are paying against those the fundamental earnings power. Uh, Alibaba is 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 amazingly uh, interesting. Uh, JD and Tencent are a lot less so. Yeah. Okay. Got it. They may we'll... get there, but they're just not there yet. Not there yet. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Well, to round off the the China question, then in the midst of potentially temporary negative sentiment in China, is there a significant opportunity to take advantage of mispricing from the underlying value of these firms across the board? Do you think, or is it? as you said, in regards to Alibaba, picking out the specific stocks that make sense and maybe the broader broader market doesn't. Yeah, absolutely, Hayden. If you, if you think about it, uh, I mean, China was was the darling of EM investors for a while. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we had 2021, where the rest of the EM was, was up you know, 10, 15%, where China was down more than 20%. That's a huge dispersion in terms of, of you know, market performance. And as a result of that shift, uh, the, the, what happened is a lot of, of very attractively uh, run businesses with strong fundamentals uh, came into the deep value category for us. And, uh, and as a result, uh, at, at one point, we were really, you know, very, we had very few Chinese names in the portfolio. Over the last two two years, uh, we have been able to add lots of interesting Chinese names to the portfolio, uh, primarily because of that huge price dislocation, uh, that huge price dispersion that happened in 2021, and also to a certain extent in 2022. Uh, now, the way our process works, we are truly bottoms up, uh, bottom up, I guess, uh, and it's it's really trying to understand. Uh, 
each business at its own level and does it stack against what its uh, fundamental earnings power is. So we were able to find a Chinese real estate name, which is a China Overseas Land Investment. We were able to find a brokerage firm like GF Securities. We were able to find a casino in Macau called Galaxy Entertainment. Uh, uh, and, and so it's really very individual idiosyncratic business opportunities that happen to be in China uh, were the names that we were able to add to the portfolio. And even as we uh, sit here today to your question, there is definitely more opportunities in, in Chinese names uh, in, the, uh, in the investment world right now in, in emerging markets, a lot more than we have seen in the prior, I would say, six, seven years. So yes, we, we feel that there is more opportunity in China names today uh, to find really good businesses uh, because of the, the whole decline in the market. Uh, those names can be very attractive investments going forward. Got it. And uh, you mentioned your bottom-up approach. I think that's the perfect segue to move on to how to practically apply the EM value approach to today's markets. I think listeners will be keen to understand that and how you capture yeah. these opportunities in your EM value funds. Firstly, then, to what extent is a, is an active management approach fundamental to the outperformance of your funds? Oh, it is absolutely critical. It is absolutely critical, and and as I explained earlier, a lot more so in the in the emerging markets realm. Mm -hmm. And uh, look, if you, if you think about the philosophy of how we invest and and what companies we invest in, it it every investment that we're looking for has to have three key core characteristics. Number one, we are trying to invest in businesses which are fundamentally better than their peers. They have a competitive edge, so they are great businesses. It could be a product advantage. It could be an advantage around scale, uh, around a cost structure. Uh, it could be technology, whatever, but they are essentially a brands that they are you know, generating superior returns versus their competition. Now, these stocks, as I mentioned earlier, don't get cheap unless people are worried about something and there is a lot of uncertainty around it. And that is where an active management approach where you really are trying to assess what's going on with the business, what is the company trying to do over time, engaging with the company, all of those form a very critical part of assessing whether the business uh, has a high likelihood of fixing that those problems and these problems are, are transitory in nature or are they actually a permanent impairment to the business. And the last, the third thing, which is really important as a value investor, especially because, uh, you know, some of these journeys take multi-year, uh, several years to, to come to fruition, is the downside protection of that particular stock. Uh, in, in 2019, if you're investing in a stock because you think that they need to go through some changes and, and fix the business, nobody saw COVID coming. And when COVID came, everything went for a toss and the two-year journey could have become a five-year journey and could have really hurt their balance sheets in, in different ways that we might not have anticipated. So long story short, there is high uncertainty. So you have to really understand the downside protection, which is what's the balance sheet? What is the cash flow of the business? If the pain persists for very long, does the company have the ability to make it to the other side? And so an active management approach is the only way I think to understand and, and invest in these stocks because we are trying to uh, understand and, and evaluate how these businesses evolve over several years. And there is no other formula to solve that uh, that particular riddle. Yeah, got it. I guess is one challenge then to weigh that active management approach with your long-term 
investment horizon. You don't want to be trading in and out of positions, for example. You need to hold these for five years, for example, or um, like you like you referenced earlier. So um, it's active, but it's certainly not to trade in and out of positions to capitalize on price action or anything like that. Yeah, usually not. I mean, it's it, it, we can get lucky at times. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a stock and and you know we get very lucky, we might be out of it in six months. Uh, I would say it has happened, but it is a fairly mm-hmm. rare phenomenon. Uh, but yes, we if you look at our turnover of the portfolio in terms of how many you know names that come in and out of the portfolio, or or how much do we trade, it's usually not that high, because we take a lot of time and a lot of energy in the initial part of our work where we're trying to evaluate a company. And generally, it takes several months for us to to do all the research, to talk to the management team, talk to the bear analysts, build our financial models, talk to the experts, to get really comfortable with the business and our our assessment of what it should look like over the next few years. Once that is done, it is not it's it's possible but it's not very frequent that you know things change you know uh, in a day or in a month or even sometimes in a year uh, and and of course if it does we are constantly evaluating that and looking at the businesses and how they evolve but end of the day uh, our 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 research is is fairly deep so it doesn't change dramatically over time and as a result the only t- uh, Trading that you will see is when a stock has done really well or or has not done well at all, versus uh, the, when we start the position and that generally is a is a way for us to either make it a bigger position or a smaller position depending on how the stock prices have moved. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, we're just returning to that uh, bottom up versus top down macro approach. You talked about kind of being aware of uncertainty because that's when things become cheap and when fears in the market, that's when those cheap evaluations exist. But am I right in thinking that the bottom up approach or the bottom up analysis of a company is the first step and then a second or even tertiary consideration is that macro analysis? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, especially in emerging markets, you you cannot take macro out of the equation. It is just a critical component of how those economies and those businesses work. We also understand that we are not macroeconomists. And so we do not want to invest in businesses which are purely driven by macroeconomic fundamentals. Because really, what do we know? There are a lot of people who are doing this for a living will do a better job of it. Our strength is understanding the bottom-up micro-assessment of every business, its segments, what you know, how they evolve over time, what the management decisions and engagement plan looks like, and, and so on and so forth. So, but but to, as as I said, it does make a big difference in emerging markets. So what we do is, we for every investment we are looking at, we run a wide range of scenarios for macroeconomic drivers of the business, uh, whether it's currency rates, GDP growth rate, whether it is uh, interest rates or commodity prices. And if all we are investing is is basically those drivers, then that's not a good investment for us because that's not our core expertise. So a, a great investment for us is where the micro company specific fundamentals, the idiosyncratic risk of the company is the biggest driver of investment outcomes. And yes, macro can have an impact, but it is, does not have a disproportionate impact on the eventual uh, investment outcome. 
and and I mentioned some examples earlier, you know, for example, Ambev or or Vietnam Dairy. I mean, these businesses, yes, they do get impacted by COVID or by macro factors, but the real underlying driver of the business, uh, which is which is you know their brand strength, their distribution capabilities, uh, those are relatively unimpacted. Whether GDP grows at at three or six percent, yes, it will have some impact, but is not fundamental to the the long-term thesis of of what you are paying for these stocks versus their earnings power. Yeah, got it. I was going to ask for some examples, so that's great. I mean, um, we've talked a lot about uh, valuation being critical uh, to identify well-valued stocks in this space, but I think listeners will be keen to understand exactly how you determine the proper valuation of a company. You know, which fundamentals do you look at? Which ones are most important to Pazina? Yeah, it's it's really a very company and sector specific assessment. Mm-hmm. But end of the day, the the most critical component is what is the true business and competitive edge the the particular company has, uh, because as I mentioned, these these stocks have a multi year journey to fix their profitability. And if you are buying the the worst, so let me take an example of of a commodity company. In in a commodity company, you know, let's say copper, you can be in the in the cheapest quartile of the cost curve, which means that your cost to produce copper is one of the lowest in the industry, or you could be at the 90th percentile of the cost curve. Now, clearly, when you're in the 90th percentile of the cost curve, if tomorrow prices go up 30 percent, your profits might double or triple. At the same time, when it if the prices go down 30%, you might be loss making, uh, uh, and and you know you might not be able to keep going for a long time. And but if a company is the 25th percentile of the of the cost curve, in both those scenarios, they should still be profit generating. It will be different profit levels for sure, but they would they would not be in stress. They would not be in in a fundamental uh, position of needing to raise equity or any of those issues. So that's how a quality of business is determined in a commodity business. In in another business, for example, uh, let, let's take a business where you have a tremendous market share. I, I use the example of Galaxy, which is a casino in Macau. And uh, so the business is, is very strong because they have the largest land bank in Macau. Macau is, is a growing part of, the, part of the, the consumption for Chinese consumers. And almost every other casino is tapped out. Macau is an island and they don't have much more land bank on the on the main Kotai area, which is where all the newer casinos are coming up. So Galaxy can double its capacity where nobody else can grow it uh, even close to, to you know 20% in most cases. Number two, it is the largest casino. It is also the most diversified in terms of its customer base. Number three, it has a net cash balance sheet. Uh, and And Really, all these casinos became cheap when uh, when COVID hit. Uh, the visitation dropped 97%. I don't know who the 3% people still were going, but I'm sure some people were. But essentially, uh, as as you think about, at that point, nobody knew how long it will take for COVID to normalize. And let's say if it takes two years, everything goes back to normal, then you know Galaxy will do really well. And so would every, everybody else. But let's say it takes five, seven years for COVID to normalize. 
in that scenario, yes, it won't be a, a happy journey for all the casinos, but Galaxy will still be okay because they have a lot of cash in the balance sheet to survive that journey. Whereas a lot of their peers, whether it's it's Win Macau or MGM China, which are highly levered with a lot of debt, will not be able to make it to the other side. And so this is another case of, you know, trying to, so here the business strength actually provides you great downside protection and it's, it's very different from a commodity business. So, so I think long, the, my long way of kind of giving these examples is that that assessment is really company and, and sector specific where you're trying to understand what is the business, what is the fundamental strength it has, and, and it really you have to look at, at the company and sector level to make that assessment of whether it's really a great business that can survive the journey of, of normalization over the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. No, that example was really illuminating, really helpful, I think. Um, finally, then, I want to finish on, on ESG. I read on your website that, Pazina, do apply an ESG filter on the universe of stocks that you invest in. So how does that work? Yeah, actually, I we don't apply a filter, but let let me take a step back and and explain how how we uh, do it at Zena. Mm-hmm. So at, at the very onset, from a philosophical standpoint, there is a very high uh, degree of of uh, I would say uh, gelling between between. Uh, long-term fundamental investing and ESG into the the philosophy because most ESG issues are long-term in nature and and that aligns well with our strategy. We also focus on identifying companies which are undergoing pain and a lot of times ESG could be a source of pain. So going back to your question of, of, you know, the filters we don't have any particular filter in our in our system but we don't have a value judgment either this is good esg or bad esg our fundamental approach is to identify businesses which have tremendous ESG improvement potential. And we did a small white paper, uh, which we are happy to send you if you're interested. But essentially what that white paper showed is there is very limited correlation between investment performance and ESG scores. But there's a much stronger correlation between uh, investment performance and ESG score improvement. And that's kind of fundamentally ties into our philosophy. We are trying to buy businesses which have potential for improvement, including on the ESG front. And if we can find those businesses where ESG could be a source of pain, but if you can fix those businesses over time and and improve your ESG, it's a win-win. You benefit as an investor and the ESG credentials of any company improving is good for for all of us around the world because end of the day, that's the goal we all have. It's not about saying that the bad ESG companies go to oblivion. It is about bad ESG companies become good ESG companies. And, and so that's kind of our fundamental approach to looking at ESG and how we invest in, in companies uh, and, and think about the issues that they are facing. And today in our portfolio, we have identified a set of companies which we call as opportunity list. And these are companies where we believe the, the improvement potentially on the uh, improvement potential on the ESG front is the highest. So we engage with those companies. We we work with them on the ESG improvement plan because we believe this is a case where you can improve the ESG of those businesses as well as in the journey, create in, uh, superior investment returns. Yeah, really interesting. Okay. Uh, well, I guess a related question then is that 
emerging markets are often lambasted for their lack of transparency and, and governance you as bet. well, which is obviously part of that ESG consideration. So how do you mitigate against those two factors? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, and truly so, I mean, governance issues, uh, you know, lack of transparency, sister company transactions, uh, these are all par for the course in emerging markets. So, so we as investors do a few things to address that. So number one, we do understand purely from a country standpoint, a dollar of earnings in US is not the same dollar of earnings if it's if the stock is in Korea versus if the stock is in, let's say, Indonesia. So we use a different discount rate for the cash flows of a business based on the country the stock is domiciled in. And so just to bring some numbers in perspective, if you look at uh, where stocks uh, are today, where the discount rates are, a dollar of earnings in US is a dollar of earnings. It's only worth about 75 cents if a stock is based in Thailand, and it's only worth about 50 cents if it's based in Turkey. So a stock in Turkey would have to be twice as expensive, uh, twice as cheap, sorry, as a U.S. stock to be considered at par. So that's the first first kind of filter that we use. The second thing is, uh, you know, we also cover our sectors globally as a, as an investment team, and and as a result. Uh, let's say if I'm covering utilities, I'm going to cover it around the world, but I see the governance issues that the companies face in the developed world versus in the developing world, and I can kind of adjust the financial ramifications of those governance uh, risks in that company because I have seen the the perspective of, of how it evolves around the globe. And that has been really helpful in us avoiding value traps at times because of we think how a governance issue can have a dramatic impact on a particular stock. The third thing we do is we do have, a, I mean, we always engage extensively with the companies that we work with and, and we vote all of our proxies to really emphasize the changes that we want the managements to make. We were talking to a to uh, an Indian pharmaceutical company yesterday uh, where we have been pushing for them to have an independent board uh, for, for I think two or three years. And finally, uh, they went to 50-50 board membership uh, on the, on the uh, independent versus non-independent. And yesterday they confirmed to us that they are going to make it majority independent over the next year or so. So our focus is, is engaging with them explaining to them and and kind of pushing them to make those governance improvements and then if they don't uh, or if they do we kind of vote through our proxies to communicate our our kind of uh, push or or kind of support in change of that direction and the last thing i would say is you know you can do all of this and you can still get it wrong. That's just how EM is. So then it comes down to portfolio controls on, on position size, kind of keeping, in spite of everything working out really well, you control the position size to make sure you're not putting too much eggs in one basket because from an idiosyncratic standpoint, you can do everything right and you can still kind of get hit by, by some governance or transparency or fraud issues in some cases. So those are the various different ways to to. To, that we use to control for these particular risks, which are which are really pertinent to emerging markets. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Rakesh, for joining us on the Opto Sessions podcast. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Hayden, and uh, and I look forward to speaking with you down the line again.